First Timothy chapter 2. Welcome, if you're visiting with us especially today. First Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 8. This is the Apostle Paul continuing to talk about uh, what good order looks like in the church. He says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as the beloved bride of your beloved son, Jesus. He has united us to himself as his body and as his church. Help us as his bride to hear what he is saying to us in your word, to become more holy, more joyful, filled with more good works. Help us, we pray in his name. Amen. As a matter of personal pastoral policy, I generally don't like to shape our worship services into the mold of American holidays like Fourth of July or Father's Day because the Church of Jesus transcends, even if it doesn't obliterate, our earthly citizenship. But if you can believe it, as it happens without any planning or really thinking about it or realizing it until about five days ago, for Mother's Day, I have ended up on a passage that speaks explicitly about women and motherhood. And as you have heard, It's a pretty juicy one. I tried to get Danny Sheffield just now to preach this sermon. He said no. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Timothy to help him lead a church in chaos. One of the ways he's doing that is by speaking about how men and women should relate to each other as they approach and engage in worship. As you guys heard earlier in the reading from Genesis, at the very, very beginning of the Bible, only the second chapter, God has created all humans as male and female. We bear and we reflect and we are God's image as men and as women. In our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts, our desires, our work, our relationships with each other. It's the good design of a good God who knows and wants what is good for us and for our world. The Bible has always challenged every human society in the way it views what it means to be men and women, not only our society, but also the societies of the ancient world. I realize how difficult in many ways this passage is. It's difficult for me in many ways. But we need to remember, I need to remember, that God and His Word are good. 
and that we reject God's word, we reject God's wisdom, only at our own great peril. A world that denigrates God's design for the mannishness of men and the womanishness of women is a world that is inflicting great harm and misery upon itself. And so here, as Paul is preparing to remind Timothy in chapter 3, we'll get to this next week, as he's preparing to remind Timothy about who is qualified for leadership in the church, he is now exhorting men and women about what holy worship should look like for them. That's the basic idea of this short passage. Men and women engaged in holy and healthy worship. So first in verse 8, holy worship for men. Holy worship for men. Paul is speaking through this whole passage, through the whole letter. He's not just talking about his own quirky uh, personal preferences. He's not just working through his own strange daddy issues or mommy issues or something like that. But rather, he is speaking as Jesus' appointed apostle to the nations. He just said that at the end of our passage last week. Paul, the apostle Paul, was authorized in a very unique way to write Jesus' holy word down for all people in all ages. And so in that office, in that role, Paul says here in verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray. Prayer. We're going to see in a little bit that God's design on this side of the new creation at the end of history as we know it, God's design for now is that men should exercise a humble, sacrificial, loving leadership in their families and in the church as elders. And it's amazing, isn't it, that Paul, the first thing he says, really the only thing he says here about what he wants men to be doing, the primary way that they are to be lovingly leading is by praying. Now, of course, women are supposed to be praying too. Um, Paul explicitly assumes in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, he assumes that women are going to be praying out loud in church. And you just heard last week him saying that he wants everybody, he wants all Christians to be praying for all kinds of people. But he zeroes in on men in talking about wanting them to pray. Uh, You men and you boys who are becoming men, we need to be particularly marked by discipline and diligence in prayer. There's a sense in which Paul is saying that prayer is manly. So many of us are so far from where we should be in prayer. We've been talking about this. Many of us are too ashamed to begin praying at all, whether in our own families or on our own. And so the encouragement for you this morning, kind of like last week about prayer, the encouragement to you this morning is to just turn to the Lord no matter how little you're doing, no matter how badly you've failed, no matter how much better your wife or your mom is at praying. Ask God to help you pray more. Ask Him to help you pray better. God will bless you. He loves to bless us as we draw near to Him, seeking His help. Uh, And as He blesses us, He'll bless the people around us, not least the people in your church, Paul says. Notice, though, that Paul is emphasizing the character of men as they pray. He doesn't say, I just want them to be kind of doing prayer-like things uh, or mouthing the words of prayers. Uh, Don't just go through the motions. Don't just put on a show. He says, I want you men to be praying with holy hands. He says, lifting up their hands. That was kind of the posture of asking for things in the ancient world and when you were before somebody important. Paul says, I want you men to be praying with holy hands 
uh, with lives that are free from anger and from quarreling. Now, again, of course, many women can and do struggle in many ways with the sins of anger and being argumentative. But Paul is, I think, particularly concerned about this in men because then and now and always, since Genesis 3, they've had a tendency toward violence and aggression and abuse. And so Paul says there's absolutely no place for this kind of behavior, this kind of attitude, this kind of posture in the home or in the church. No matter how strong you are, no matter how loud you are, no matter how successful you are, no matter how much your family or your church is willing to go along with it all. We need to hear very clearly as we turn now to some difficult things that the passage says about women that none of it is any kind of excuse for any kind of masculine abuse or manipulation or guilt-tripping toward women. There's no excuse for any of it. Men are supposed to be known, Christian men are supposed to be known for and committed to earnest prayer. Earnest prayer that flows from hearts and minds that Paul says need to be holy and peaceful and gentle. That's holy worship for men. Now, holy worship for women. It's verses 9 to 15. I'm really not sure why Paul spends so much more time here on women than on men. Uh, It might be because he's transitioning from talking about prayer in the passage last week. It might be because he's about to spend a lot of time in chapter 3 talking about the qualifications for leadership, uh, which I hope to show you Paul wants to be for men. Uh, It might be because there were particular problems with the women in this Ephesian church and their relationship to the false teaching that's been going around. But whatever the reason is, he doesn't really tell us why, uh, whatever the reason is, Paul starts out discussing how women should adorn themselves. Uh, That is, how they should be presenting themselves to the church and to the world. He says that their clothing should be respectable, or another way you could translate this is appropriate. Uh, He says their uh, clothing is supposed to be characterized by modesty and self-control. He says, don't let them be adorned with braids and gold and pearls and expensive clothes. But instead, and you can kind of see here that he's not maybe quite literally talking about clothes so so much. He shifts to talking about wearing good works. Your, Your clothes really should be your good works, Paul says. So once again, as with the praying men, Paul doesn't just say, I want them to be praying and I'm not really concerned about what their lives are like. Paul says, I want you to be the certain kind of men who pray. I want you to be holy men who pray. In the same way, you can see here that his ultimate concern is not so much with the ladies' clothes as it is with their character. He's not actually saying women are not allowed to braid their hair. He's not actually saying women cannot have any gold or pearls. Uh, He's not really even saying you can't have any expensive clothes. He's not saying that women have to wear very plain clothing. It's about being ostentatious. It's about being seductive. It's about being distracting. It's about being self-absorbed. Of course, these are all things that men can do too. You know, I don't wear a tank top to church because I don't want to distract you with (laughs) what I'm hiding under here. In Paul's day, women would have these very elaborate systems of braiding their hair. If you've ever studied ancient literature or art, um, you can see some of this sometimes. Um, They'd have all kinds of little dangly gold accessories. Uh, All of it was very expensive. It was very time-consuming to put together. Uh, And they were a way that ancient women would advertise and project their status and their wealth. Uh, Sometimes it was a way of projecting your sexual availability. 
Uh, of course, we might not do it in the same exact ways. We don't do big braided beehives on our hair to advertise the same thing that they did, uh, but we can still do it with our clothes and with our possessions, perhaps more than ever, with social media. And so Paul is not saying to Christian women, he's not saying, well, don't focus at all on clothing or makeup uh, or that kind of stuff. But really what he's saying is that insofar as you are wearing your clothes, because of course they have to wear clothes, not everyone can go around in burlap sacks, he says do it in such a way uh, that you're not drawing attention to yourself and you're not distracting other people, especially in church. Paul's point, he says, far more than you are concerned about your physical beauty, far more than you are concerned for your online persona, Paul says you should be concerned with obedience and sacrifice for God particularly in loving and serving the people around you. Your main clothing, your main image, so to speak, should be your good works, Paul says. But look now at verse 11. Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Uh, Let me point out something that is... I hope, obvious to us now, but was not at all obvious to the Jewish or the Greek or the Roman worlds and is still not obvious to many places in the world today, that women not only can learn, but that they must learn. This is actually a command that Paul is giving. Paul is saying, I command these women. Women must be commanded to study and to learn and to grow as Christian disciples and as Christian theologians. This is actually a very distinctly Christian idea. Uh, It was one of the many things about Christianity that has radically changed the world for the better. In many ways, feminism and the Me Too movement exist because of the New Testament's exalted, radically exalted view of a woman's dignity and equality and intelligence and capability. This was not something at all obvious to the ancient world that women should be learning Uh, There's a line in one of the uh, Jewish commentaries on the Bible from Paul's time that says, men men go to synagogue to learn, women can just go to listen. Paul says, no, they're there to learn. They need to study. Paul says they need to learn, but he says they should be doing it in a quiet way. There's another Greek word that has more to do with like total silence, and this is not that word. This is a word that has more to do uh, with learning in a respectful and a peaceable way in a non-disruptive way. It's really the same kind of quietness that lay men, uh, you know, men who are not pastors, also should be doing. It's not, Paul's not saying, well, the men can be really loud and disruptive during church, but don't let the women do that. Um, again, maybe there's something going on in this church with the women, why he calls them out on this. Um, in his other letters, Paul assumes that men and women are going to be speaking out loud at church that they're going to be singing at church, they're going to be sharing things, they're going to be praying out loud, they're going to be encouraging each other during church services. And so he's not talking about being completely and totally and literally quiet. He's talking about a respectful demeanor, I think especially in the learning portion of the service, which is the part that's happening right now. You can see that because of where Paul goes next. He says he doesn't permit women to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I think what Paul is basically saying is that God has reserved the leadership of the church, the role of the elder, for qualified men. We'll have more in a little bit on why that is, but for now, stay with me. We're going to camp on this a little bit. 
I want you to see here that Paul is not saying that any male, just because he's a male, can teach or have authority over the church or over women. Paul is not saying that. He's not saying just because you are a man, you therefore have authority over all women in the world. Paul is talking specifically about the office, the role of the elder, for which the great majority of men are not qualified. But he does not say, I don't permit a woman to be an elder, even though I think that's basically what he means. He focuses on the function of the elder. And with it, he's including also the role of the elder. The function of the elder at the end of the day, the basic bread and butter of what it means to be an elder in a church, is to teach and to rule the church in an authoritative way. That's why he brings these two verbs together. Paul says that women, and by implication, lay men, non-elder men, they, don't, they should not be functioning like elders are supposed to function, especially when the church is gathering for worship and for official business. Um, the elders of this church, myself being one of them, uh, we spent about a year and a half before COVID exploded in our world, we spent about a year and a half discussing and arguing about the role of women in our church and whether or not uh, maybe they should have a larger role than they do. Uh, we wanted to wait until the COVID stuff calmed down in order to tell you about what will change. Um, but I can tell you now that COVID's kind of calmed down and I'm on a passage that's talking about it. Anyways, um, we want to have women much more actively involved in the life of our church, um, in our worship service and in other aspects of it. I'd be happy to talk with you about any of this afterwards or any of the elders would be happy to talk with you. Um, trying, I think, to better reflect what the New Testament seems to be describing and when it talks about worship services and what Christians do when they get together to worship in a formal way, like what we're doing right now, but also, too, when they're getting together in a more informal way, things like small groups, uh, Sunday school classes, things like that. So from what we're going to be doing in our church is we're going to, once again, have unordained, that means not elders and not deacons. We shifted this to be only elders and deacons uh, to try to be consistent instead of um, just having letting any man read the Bible. We're going to let unordained men and women read Scripture during our worship services, uh, just like unordained men and women already pray out loud during the service and through their praying kind of give encouragements and help all of us, just like we already sing songs written by women, and through that they're helping us and they're encouraging us. We're also going to be um, opening up the leadership of small groups to lay men and to lay women. So far, it's pretty much just been elders and deacons doing it, again, trying to be consistent. Um, and then we're going to at least theoretically uh, open up teaching Sunday school classes to uh, men and women in the church, but the elders really like teaching Sunday school. And they said, well, can we still just do it? We really want to do it. And I was like, okay. But theoretically, men and women could do it. Um, these are things that we think are okay because they are outside of the corporate formal worship service, which is, we think, what Paul is talking about here in 1 Timothy 2. Uh, and we think that all these things can still be done under the oversight and the authority of the elders. And again, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to talk about it. But to come back to the passage, Paul says in verse 12 that by God's good design, women should not be or function as elders. And again, I realize how grating that might sound to some of you, how offensive and strange in our world. But look at the reasons that Paul gives for it in verses 13 and 14. First reason Paul gives in verse 13 is because of how God originally created humanity. And here we're talking about something that's true. Even before sin enters into the world, 
with the fall. Uh, therefore, something that's still normative, something that still is authoritative, something that we still should be following on this side of the new creation. Uh, this is something that is part of this creation. Um, Jesus makes a similar kind of argument in talking about marriage and divorce. Uh, he points back to the Garden of Eden uh, about Adam and Eve before sin to make an argument about marriage and what it is, even though Jesus also says elsewhere, well, yeah, in the new creation, there's not going to be marriage anymore. Uh, Paul makes a similar kind of argument when he's talking about food, that all kinds of food are permissible to Christians, even uh, you know, gluten and uh, potato chips and all that kind of stuff. Paul makes, he says all kinds of food are permissible to Christians uh, because God created all kinds of food to be received with gratitude. Uh, Paul does not say that women cannot teach authoritatively because there's some situation going on in Ephesus that he's concerned about. Uh, Paul does not say women cannot teach authoritatively because it would cause a lot of offense in a patriarchal society. Paul grounds his command in creation, even before sin. God made Adam first, and then he made Eve. And Paul says that's really significant for understanding how men and women should relate to each other in the family and by extension in the family of the church, uh, what Paul calls later in 1 Timothy the household of God. Uh, in the biblical way of thinking, again, this is something that's pretty different than the way a lot of people in our world think, but in the biblical way of thinking, hierarchy and authority and power differentials are not inherently wrong. They can go very wrong, they can be uh, very wicked, but they are not in and of themselves inherently wrong or evil. Um, even though, like I've said, when Jesus brings in the new creation, uh, something is going to shift very dramatically in the way that we relate to each other. There is no longer, I don't think, going to be a hierarchy between men and women. Uh, just like in the new creation, there will no longer be pastors or police officers or even marriage. I will be out of a job in the new creation. I'll have to find something else to do because there's no more need for the hierarchy of an elder ruling over a church. God made Adam first, and with making him first, God made him particularly responsible for the fate of all humanity. God gave him, before he made Eve, God gave Adam the command about not eating from the tree, and God appointed him, before Eve was made, God appoints him to name all the animals. Uh, in the Bible, naming is an exercise of authority, getting to change people's names or decide who they are. That's a way of showing that you have, uh, you're an authority over them. God then makes Eve from his side, which is very significant uh, metaphorically. God makes Eve from his side so that he would have a helper, a helpmate, and then Adam names her too, indicating again that Adam has a measure of authority over Eve even before sin enters the world. That's Paul's first reason about why women should not be teaching and leading authoritatively like elders in the church. Uh, the point is that there's something deeply significant about our maleness and our femaleness, something that goes all the way back to our creation and it affects all the ways that we relate to each other, though it has now been marred by great sin and brokenness and hardship. God has wisely designed husbands to lead their wives and their children. He has wisely designed male elders to lead the family of the church. Not, like we've said, not as bullies, not as abusers, but as Paul lays out so beautifully in Ephesians 5, he says they should be doing it with a Christ-like humility and love and self-denial. Jesus says to his disciples in Mark, 
Don't rule over each other the way that the nations do, lording it over each other, loving to show off. He says, no, you need to be the servants. The last will be first. So Paul's first reason he gives, he gives it from before the fall, but then he gives a second reason in verse 14. It comes from after the fall. He says, Eve was deceived first by the snake, which we later hear is Satan. Paul is not saying that women are particularly gullible or dense or vulnerable. Uh, Ultimately, Adam is the one who is responsible for this. Uh, In Genesis 3, you read that he's standing right there off in the bushes or something, uh, passively letting Satan mislead his wife instead of stopping in to stop it. The point, Paul's point, I think, is that Eve attempted to reverse the roles that God had assigned them. She took charge because Adam was apparently, like many husbands and dads today, totally checked out, not paying attention, not doing what he was supposed to be doing. And so Paul says that just like Eve should not have usurped Adam's role in the garden, so also today women in the church should not usurp the authority of elders, and by implication, they should not usurp the authority of their husbands. Like I've been saying to you uh, repeatedly, especially as we've talked about civil government, we all need to remember that no human authority is absolute. All human authority is bounded by God, uh, stepping beyond the boundaries that God has assigned for various kinds of authority figures uh, does not uh, deserve uh, or demand obedience necessarily. All human authority is limited. Only God's authority is absolute. So you can see here that hierarchy, which has become a very bad word in our world and not without good reason, uh, hierarchy in the home and in the church is not just something caused by the fall, but as God's curse in Genesis 3 lays out uh, in 3 verse 17, uh, in a similar way to the way God's curse talks about Adam's work, uh, the hierarchy of the home becomes deeply painful. It becomes deeply difficult because of the fall. Something that was already there, uh, now much, much harder. You might be tempted to hear all this uh, as quite a downer. But in verse 15, Paul gives an encouragement to the women in the church. He says that she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That sounds, it's a very strange verse. It's, it's difficult in many ways. But let me tell you what I think it's not saying before I tell you what I think it is saying. It's clearly not saying that women can only be saved if they have kids. Because lots of women, of course, lots of Christian women don't have kids and won't have kids. Lots of women can't have kids. Remember that Paul himself, uh, the guy who's writing this, remember that Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 7 says that it would be great if more Christians were single like him. It'd be great if more Christians didn't get married or have kids because then they'd have so much more time and energy to focus on ministry. So this is not saying if you want to be saved, you have to get married and you have to have kids. Uh, The New Testament is quite clear that your spiritual family, the church, the household of God, your spiritual family is far more important than your biological family. And that all Christian women are now mothers and sisters to all other Christians. This verse, you can see if you look at it for a second, you can see that it's qualifying motherhood and family and marriage quite a bit by saying that it's only ultimately significant to the extent Paul says that it comes with faith and love and holiness. He says, you know, they'll be saved through childbirth if they continue in all these things. 
Because you see, in the grand scheme of things, having a great biological family does not matter if you are not living for God. Again, over and over through this passage, Paul is emphasizing what is of ultimate importance, character. Pray with holy hands. Uh, Adorn yourself with good works. Uh, Childbirth, but it only really matters if you are carrying on in holiness and self-control. The verse is also not saying that women are going to be saved because of having kids. Uh, We're only saved, the Bible is very clear, we're only saved because of what Jesus does. We're not saved because of what we do. Um, And it's not saying that women will physically survive childbirth if they obey God enough, because as I uh, realized to my horror walking through a graveyard next to my office in Scotland, uh, many, many, many godly Christian women throughout history and around the world have died in childbirth. One of the most dangerous things that anybody can ever do. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that women will reach final salvation, heaven, the new creation. Paul is saying they will reach final salvation by faithfully carrying out God's callings on their lives, which, of course, often entails the thing that makes women most distinct from men. The beautiful, unique, fearsome, dangerous, consuming calling of bearing and birthing and nursing and mothering children. Paul is saying that faithfully, and again, this applies uh, to men too in their own kinds of callings. Paul's saying that faithfully accepting and obeying God's callings on our lives, uh, some of which are, uh, if not dictated by our bodies, at least um, alluded to in our bodies or uh, nudged, nudging us in a way with our bodies in the way that they change and the way that they move and go. Um, faithfully accepting and obeying God's callings on our lives, no matter how mundane they might be, no matter how unimpressive they might be to the world, no matter how much the world might laugh at them, Paul is saying, as one Puritan puts it, that this is the way to salvation, even if it's not the way of salvation. Faithfully fulfilling God's callings on your life, very imperfectly, very far from what you should be doing in them, but fulfilling God's callings on your life is the way to salvation. It's the way that you get to heaven. Um, but it's not the cause of you being in heaven, if that makes sense. Paul is not saying that women cannot work. You see in the New Testament the examples of the businesswoman Lydia and Paul's wealthy patroness Phoebe. And you see in Proverbs 31's idealized description of the excellent wife, this woman who is profoundly involved with all kinds of business and leadership and manufacturing and finance. So it's not saying women can't work. It's also not saying that men should not be involved with childcare. The book of Proverbs over and over talks at great length about the importance of dads raising and teaching and disciplining their kids. And Ephesians 5 says that husbands should be sacrificially serving their wives, which of course will often entail helping them with babies and kids. In our own church, we would love to have more men involved in children's ministry. Please talk to me or talk to Diane Corley if you are at all interested. Women are irreplaceably precious, not only in the family, but also in the church. And this is much of Paul's point here. Churches and pastors fail when they treat women as suspect, as deficient, as closet feminists, as mere appendages to be ignored or shuffled off to nurseries and luncheons. 
God has given women to their husbands and to their churches as helpers, as helpmates. A Hebrew word that is often used as a description for God himself, and which one scholar translates as necessary ally, not optional thing on the side, but necessary ally. Every week in our liturgy, we use this word to confess that our help is in the name of the Lord, the very same word that God uses to describe Eve's role for Adam. Uh, There's a great book I found really helpful about a year ago by a woman named Amy Bird called No Little Women. She wrote it mainly out of deep concern over how much theological garbage is written for and marketed to women and consumed by women uh, in Christian bookstores all over the country. Um, In one chapter of the book, she goes through and she shows what a significant and important role that women have had uh, in the life of God's people all through Scripture. And she kind of riffs on this idea of what does it mean to be the helpmate. Uh, It means a lot more uh, than, you know, eating salads or knitting or something like that. She says, here's, you know, some, here's some examples. I'm just going to rip them off of her. Here's some examples you see uh, in the Bible of women acting as necessary allies, as helpmates. She says that they do it by warning men about turning away from evil. So think of Abigail warning King David uh, to cool it and, and not to totally lose, his, uh, lose it with this crazy guy. Uh, she says they also do it by fighting as co-belligerents against evil enemies. Think of Esther preventing a genocide. Or what's probably my favorite Bible story, uh, J.L. pinning Sisera to the ground by driving a tent peg through his head so that then he's kind of stuck there dying on the ground. Uh, she says they also do it by mediating God's word. Think of the prophetic roles of Miriam and Mary rejoicing in God uh, and their words written down for us today to, to encourage us. Uh, they do it also by giving wise instruction and counsel. Think of the way that the book of Proverbs describes wisdom as a woman, Lady Wisdom, instructing us and discipling us. Uh, or in the New Testament, you have this lady named Priscilla, who's always named first alongside of her husband, Aquila, and they pull aside this guy named Apollos and give him a very serious Bible lesson and theology lesson. Uh, they also act as helpmates, as necessary allies, by collaborating in service to others. So think of the women who funded and served Jesus and his ministry. Many of the women who funded Paul and his ministry, he's always talking about them at the ends of his letters, greeting all these women who have helped him and worked with him. They also do it by boldly and faithfully responding to God. Uh, think of the beautiful story of Naomi and Ruth uh, taking the initiative to make things work out with Boaz. Uh, And finally, Amy Bird says that they do it by influencing men from a gift of empathy and relatedness. Uh, You can see in Jesus and Paul's lives and ministries, even though neither of them were married, they both had very close and very warm relationships with many women. And they would have lost quite a bit if they didn't have those women helping them, as you can see in, in their friendships with them and how involved they were with their lives. Women are vastly important to the world and to society, and to the family, and to the church as women. They, like men, have so much to offer to the people of God as we all struggle to carry out God's callings on our lives together. We were made to worship God, and in the church, if you can believe it, I know sometimes it can feel pretty lame, but in the church we are getting a foretaste of how we will spend all of eternity worshiping God as men and as women, even if then we will no longer be husbands and wives or pastors and lay people. And so let's pray 
that God deepens our love for him, deepens our resolve to carry out his callings in our lives as men and as women, so that we might better reflect him in lives and worship marked by holiness and love and self-control. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the goodness of your word and of your wisdom that you give us. Help us and help me to conform our lives to it. Help us to uh, see whatever blind spots we might have from our society or from our history or our backgrounds or our own desires and selfishness. Help us, Lord, to honor uh, you by honoring your people. Uh, Help us, Lord, to be a church that faithfully shows uh, your plan and your good design for men and women and boys and girls. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.